Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. May you find in the garden of spirituality a flower whose fragrances suit you. Welcome one and all to Monday Night Yoga Philosophy. Now it's very important when you do yoga philosophy to be in a meditative space. This is not a philosophy for the mind. It is a philosophy for the intuition, for the heart. So a lot of the argumentation will sound like something you already know. And that will be the case if you can stay in this meditative, trance-like state as we have today's discussion. So originally, I intended to tell you a yoga creation story. But before I do that... um, Let's just talk about, first and foremost, what yoga is for. What is it trying to do? So the first thing that I want to talk about today is perhaps a recap for some of you. Um, It is the problem of suffering. Now, the first person to articulate the problem of suffering was the Buddha, the Shakyamuni Buddha. This is around 600 BCE. The Buddha had an insight or a realization. He said that in this world, there are two ways to suffer. The first is by not getting what you want. And we all know how that sensation of not getting what you want feels like. A lot of life is that. It's the disappointment. It's the things not quite adding up in the ways that you wanted. And a lot of life is defined by the struggle to get those things. So there's a lot of like, this is miserable because there's some ends that we're chasing. That's one way to suffer. The second way to suffer, and this is the rub, is by getting what you want. So that was the Buddha's ultimate joke. He said, if you don't get what you want, you suffer. Welcome, welcome, TikTok people. Nish, it's good to see you. Lizzie Costco, hello. Now, if you get what you want, you also suffer. So that's the joke. Now, why is that the case? So if you don't get what you want, you struggle. But when you do get get what you want, two things can happen. One, you start to feel the anxiety of losing what you have. So with every possession, with every accomplishment, with every joy, hiding behind that joy is the shadow of loss. And that's because deep down inside, you realize intuitively that nothing is forever you realize that you're living in a world of change. All your experiences thus far have proven to you this one fact, that all things pass. All sadnesses become joys. All joys become sadnesses. Nothing is ever the way it is just that way for a long time. So with that awareness comes the fear of loss, comes the fear of change. So that's an interesting um, kind of paradox. Secondly, and this is perhaps worse, what if you get something and you're super secure about it? So a lot of life might be a struggle to get something and the rest of life is a struggle. And I will respond to the question about where we learned all of this uh, later at the end of our talk. A lot of life is a struggle to get what you want. And then a lot of life is a struggle to keep what you want. Let's say you're somehow successful in doing this. You're somehow able, after much work, to not only get what you want, but also feel relatively secure about it. You have a kingdom. 
or your financial life is secure, or your partner isn't going anywhere, or you feel like your, your beauty is going to be there for a while, whatever. Say you somehow manage to secure all of this. Here's the next paradox. Even if you manage in the best case scenario to get secure and to get what you want, the end of the day, you might still feel unfulfilled. And we've all felt that. We've got what we wanted, but it just wasn't quite enough. It wasn't really all the way there. Something was missing. Now, that was what the Buddha meant by suffering. He didn't mean suffering in the form of pain or political oppression or, you know, the casual ways we talk about suffering today. He meant suffering in a more existential sense. The feeling that we get to the end of our lives and we wonder what was it all worth? What were we trying to do? And we solve this problem in many ways. We build statues. We try to create a legacy. We try to make our lives mean something. But in the end, we all feel futility. And the question is, how did the Buddha come to this awareness? Now, as we know, the Buddha, he grew up as a prince in a very small kingdom in northern India, and his father was very protective, didn't want the prince to go out and see the world. So he kept the prince in his pleasure garden. And the Buddha was distracted with all the pleasures that he, you know, a prince could enjoy. And so one day the Buddha said, you know, I should go outside and see what the town is like. I mean, after all, I'm going to be ruling over these fools. Like, I should probably see what they look like. So he got his uh, servants to take him out into town, and the story is he saw four things. The first thing he saw was a sick man. And he went, oh, what's that? And his servant said, that, my Lord, is sickness. It happens to all of us, the rich, the poor, the beautiful, the ugly. Everyone can get sick. He was horrified. Then he saw an old man. And he said, what is that? Decayed, ugly thing. And the servant said, that's old age. It happens to all of us too. Eventually the hair grays. The beauty fades. We become infirm. And he goes, that's horrific. And then he sees the, the nail to the coffin is he sees a dead man. And he goes, what? What is that? He sees a funeral. And the servant says, that is death. That is the end of life. And that's something that all of us have in store. Notice this. We have, we're living in a society now that has very conveniently kept all these three things away from you. The sick people are put in the hospital far away. The old people are sent to homes. Very rarely do we have to actually care for the elders of our society. Other people do that. And most of all, the dying people, that's taboo. We don't talk about death. We don't think about it. Most of us think we're going to live forever and we plan accordingly. And the irony is all these realities of life, sickness, old age, and death, put under the carpet, brushed under the carpet. And so we live in a kind of Aldous Huxleyan pleasure dome that the Buddha found himself in, um, in which we are sheltered from these realities. So when the Buddha saw this reality, the first thing he wanted to do was to get you to realize it. He wanted to grab your shoulders, shake you by the shoulders, look in your eyes and say, do you not realize that life is suffering? You need to do something about this because sooner or later, that suffering is going to catch up to you. So when it does, what's your strategy? Now, those are the first three encounters the Buddha had. What about the fourth encounter? So he saw a sick man, he saw an old man, he saw a dead man. The fourth person he saw was a monk. He saw someone who was working to overcome these limitations. 
So the Buddha was like, oh, spirituality exists. So people have been wrestling with this problem. So he goes to join these, uh, at the time, they were forest-dwelling dropouts. The yogis of the, that era of India renounced the world. They saw the world as a place of illusions. Everything stank. Everything reeked of death. Make money, you'll be poor tomorrow. Uh, wealth, fame, lust, all these things. They were sweet in the beginning, but soon they wore out the senses. So the wise yogis left the city and they went out into the forest. So the Buddha joined them and he tried to learn their art. And he couldn't. He realized that you could teach knowledge, but you couldn't teach wisdom. So the Buddha realized something else. He realized that you cannot think your way out of the problem of suffering. So no philosophy, no belief system is going to rescue you. Because ultimately, belief systems are just thoughts. And like anything, they are subject to change. They are never going to actually comfort you in the long run. So the Buddha thus said, the only way you're going to escape suffering is by, first of all, understanding that it's a reality. Second of all, actively seeking a way out. And third of all, doing it for yourself. So no one can go on this quest for you. It's a quest that you have to go on, on your own, and you have to experience on your own. So this is the funny thing. The Buddha said suffering exists. He uh, told you why it exists. He gave you a reason. He said desire is the reason for suffering. It's because you're attached to things. You desire things that you suffer. Then he said there's a way out of suffering. So this is where Buddha takes one step further than all the French philosophers. So there was a time in 20th century philosophy, it's called existentialism, where a bunch of French guys were like, ho ho ho, la vie, c'est sacre bleu, sucks. So they all realized that life sucked, that whatever you tried to mask it, it was going to fall apart eventually. But they didn't know what the solution was. They were like, deal with it, smoke cigarettes, kill yourself, deal with it, you know? That was kind of the French solution to it. The Buddha said, no, no, no. It's not that life is suffering. It's that the way you are living is suffering and that I have found a way out. And the way out, he called it the eightfold path. Right action, right posture, right speech, a whole bunch of stuff. And he said, if you practice this, you will find a way out of suffering. Uh, yeah, I like that comment. I also enjoy current day forest monks. And it's true, the French still do this. I heard a joke once. The uh, American writer asks, how do we make the world better tomorrow? The French writer asks, why shouldn't I kill myself tonight while taking a drag of a cigarette? <laughs> so anyway, the, and I like that. Yeah, Buddhism is a very elegant philosophy. So it's mathematical. The Buddha say life is suffering. Desire is the root cause of suffering. There is a way out of suffering. Here it is. So that's what we call the four noble truths of the Buddha. This is his logic. This is his argument. So there is suffering. Desire is the cause of your suffering. Um, there is a way out of suffering. Here's how. But what he gave was not a belief system or a dogma. What he gave was a method. So what is his definition of freedom from suffering? Nirvana. That word nirvana in Sanskrit means blowing out. Blowing out of what? Of suffering. He defined the goal of Buddhism as the end of suffering. Nothing else. What does the end of suffering look like? He said, I'm not going to define that for you. Because he said, if I tell you something 
You're just going to make a belief system out of it. You're going to make a religion out of it. And that's not going to help you. Instead, I'm going to give you a hint. I'm going to give you a method. And I'm going to encourage you to go and find out for yourself. So there's something else. They call this the 16 noble silences of the Buddha. There were 16 questions the Buddha refused to answer. People would ask him, what about the afterlife? They would ask him, do gods exist? Do angels exist? And the Buddha was notoriously silent. He didn't say anything. So one day a monk said, so um, is there a reincarnation? The Buddha didn't say anything. And he goes, oh, so there isn't. The Buddha said, I didn't say that. And he goes, oh, so there is. And the Buddha says, I didn't say that either. So the Buddha was very careful not to give answers. Why? Here's the metaphor. He said, if you were shot by a poison arrow and they brought you to the doctor, would you ask the doctor, wait, doctor, doctor, before you pull the arrow out, I have a few questions. What kind of poison is in the shaft? How was the arrow shot? What shape was the arrow head? No, you wouldn't ask any of that question because you just want to get the arrow out. So the Buddha said, that's it. Suffering is an acute problem. Solve it first. Don't confuse yourself or get caught up in all these metaphysical debates and intellectual questions that don't actually solve the problem. Practice is more important than anything. So that's why the Buddha said, stay focused on the path, use the method, and find things out for yourself. So the reason I bring this up is because this is the central philosophy in yoga. Uh, someone asks, Ziggy asks, this sounds interesting. What's the topic? The topic is suffering and the way out of suffering through yoga. In other words, how can yoga help you with the existential problem of life? And yeah, someone also remarks that nirvana means blowing out. And that might be a pun because breathing exercises have a lot to do with it. The breath has a lot to do with it. And we're going to talk about it in a little bit. The breath. So the Buddha made suffering the central concern. This is what we need to solve. So the next thing that we need to talk about is why this suffering exists. So the question is, is there a world out there? And there are two ways to approach this question. So a little bit of a creation story, because this creation story will help us understand suffering. In yoga, we believe that there are two things. There is spirit, purusha, and there is nature, prakriti. But nature is an undifferentiated mass of pure energy. Meaning what the world actually is, we don't really know. We only know what the world looks like to us. So imagine looking through the eyes of a dog or the eyes of a shrimp or the eyes of a dragonfly. It wouldn't look like what we're looking at now. The dog probably has a much wider range of smells and sounds that might affect the way they look at things. Their color palettes are different. Rods and cones in shrimps and in dragonflies are like thousand times more than us. So they can perceive colors we didn't even know were there. So that's crazy that there's the idea that there is a spectrum of energy. Someone says, I look through the eyes of an artist. That's beautiful. There's a quote, the Sufi looks with both eyes closed. So the best way to see is with your eyes closed. Um, so that's kind of a funny thing. But anyway, the point is, for different beings, 
the world appears to them differently. Even for humans, from one human to the next, the world appears differently. Psychologically, we call this perspective or whatever. But yoga is way more dramatic than that. Yoga is telling you that the world doesn't only seem psychologically different from person to person; it's actually physically different. And let me explain this. So this is a difficult one. Follow closely. You do not perceive the world. You don't perceive the world. You only infer its existence. Meaning, your eyes don't actually see the apple on the table. It's more like something in the world out there is causing a reaction in your eyes. That reaction has a certain chemical and electrical pathway into your brain, but it's your brain that's assigning the image, meaning, and idea apple. So apple doesn't exist on the table out there. Apple exists on the table in here. So that's kind of a crazy idea that all of your sensing. Happens in your brain, not in your organs. So the eyes don't sense the world; the brain senses the world. So that's a yogic kind of psychology. So that means that the way your world looks is a reflection of what your inner world looks like. So have you ever been at a party where there's a lot of people and it's very noisy, and suddenly someone says your name? Suddenly you're able to hear your name. It's a little weird, but it's like your brain is able to filter reality to give you whatever it is you programmed it to give you. You programmed your brain to recognize your name. So even without being consciously aware of having heard your name, the reality around you literally gets distorted to give you that name. So the idea then is what you see, hear, taste, smell, touch, isn't coming into you from out there. It's coming out of you into the world, so that means you're projecting reality into being. Now, this is hard to understand metaphysically. Thank you for the lovely compliment. I would love to tutor your daughter, <laughs> and I will answer Miss Millenni. Why do we need bodies? So ultimately, today's lecture will end with bodies. Like, why do we have bodies? What's the point of all of this? What's the point of suffering? I'm going to tell you why today we even do this. Why we are here? Hopefully, if we get there in time. Yes, we will. I hope. So the idea then is, you can appreciate the fact that. When you're sitting with someone, what you're seeing in the world around you is very different. So, if you're sitting next to a carpenter and you and the carpenter are both um,、uh, looking at the, oh, please do not compare me to Swami Vivekananda. What an amazing, amazing fellow! But thank you for the lovely compliment. Now, imagine sitting next to a carpenter and you're looking at a table. You and the carpenter see a very different table. The carpenter, because of their years and years of training, narcissist, but in a fun way. Good to have you back. The carpenter, because of their years and years of training, sees different grains in the table. Their table literally looks different to them. Now, some of you might have been at a party, and across the room, you saw someone that was like cute. You know, they were like, oh, attractive. And you're like, I'm gonna go over there and talk to them. You walk across the room and you talk to them, and they turn out to be a complete jerk. Suddenly, they look less cute. I don't know if anybody has experienced that, but the idea of how people physically like、uh, look less cute once you get to know them. This is an example of how 
Um, these ideas are not part of a religion, they're a philosophy. Um, that's why we talked about the Buddha earlier. This isn't religion, this isn't dogma. I want you to experience these things for yourself. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. So you can't really argue with anyone because ultimately your reality is a projection of your mind. So in yoga, we have this philosophy, how the mind is, so the world. Um, it's kind of hard to translate into English, but it's like the mind equals the world. So you don't fix the world by going and doing stuff out there. Politics won't fix the world. Uh, there aren't crazy people out there. There might be crazy people out there to you, but there aren't, there's not actually anything out there except pure undifferentiated matter. It's what you do with your mind that causes that matter to appear a certain way. So this is the logic then. If we can change the programming of your mind, it will literally change the world in which you live. Things will look different. So people often talk about being able to see auras or see energy. That's all real. But that's not because they're able to see something in reality that you can't. It's because they've trained their mind to project out a certain reality. So suffering exists because you have, in the course of your life, picked up a bunch of assumptions about what life is and what life ought to be, who you ought to be who um, the world has to be for you. So all these beliefs about the world, your role in it, what you should be doing, what you should be wanting, might not actually be yours. They might have been given to you by your ancestors, coded it into your DNA, um, advertising might have done it for you. Um, unfortunately, these comments are coming in too quickly. Um, so I'm going to try my best to scroll up and respond to them. I promise you I'll do my best, but let's just get through this argument. So the idea then is you might not be responsible for your suffering, but you are able to escape it. So you're suffering perhaps because you were given a bunch of ideas about who you should be and how the world should be that just isn't reasonable. Now, let's go back. Let's backtrack a little bit. If that's the case, then just the same way that you were programmed to see the world in one way, we can program you to see the world in a different way. The question then is, why would you want to do this? Is it just so you can feel good? Is yoga just a way to feel better? Is it just creating another illusion, a better illusion than this one? If it is, so what? If it's better, it's better. Like, that's worthwhile doing. So if it's a pleasurable illusion, sure, except it's not that. And let me try to demonstrate to you why now. Yoga is the movement towards reality. We are training you to see the world without the biases that have been coded into you by your conditioning. So when you wake up from a dream, why is it that you feel like this, this waking world, is more real than the dream? Hard to say. But there's like a feeling. There's a feeling that this is a little more real. Or there's something about this world that is maybe more grounded than the dream world. The laws are different and somehow you're like, okay, this is it. I woke up from a dream. That was just a dream. I'm going to discount it. Why is it the other way around? Why don't you go to sleep and be like, ah, now for the real thing. Now I'm going to sleep and I'm going to dream and this is where I have my existence. You know, why not? 
And for some reason, everyone is able to tell the difference, most of us are able to tell the difference from dream and waking. Waking has a certain intrinsic reality to it. So you must trust that when you experience reality, you will know, you will feel it. You will intuitively understand that this is more real. A lot of you have done a lot of physical yoga, hatha yoga. Um, you've been in a class and you've done your asana and then you're lying down in shavasana or corpse pose and suddenly you feel a feeling. You don't know what that feeling is, but it feels so legit. It's a kind of pleasure, joy, fulfillment that is a little deeper than other kinds of fulfillment in the world. Not to say other kinds of fulfillment aren't worthwhile, but just that. Hello, Maggie. Welcome, welcome. It's nice to see you. So many lovely friends and faces that I love. So it's not that um, other pleasures aren't legitimate. It's just that the peace you experience lying there in Shavasana, even if it's for a few seconds, is for you more legit than anything else you felt before. Now, you didn't need some fella to tell you this. That's the thing with yoga. We don't like dogma. We don't like belief. You should not take my word for anything, nor should you take anybody's word for anything. Yoga is a method. And just like science, you should be able to try the method and get similar results. So our job as yoga teachers is to perfect your method, not to give you ideas or conclusions. But these conclusions are self-evident. When you're lying there in Shavasana, you cannot deny that feeling of peace is far deeper, far more fulfilling than anything else. So a lot of us have this glimpse. Even for a few seconds, we have a glimpse of something deeper. That deeper thing becomes deeper and deeper the more we practice. So suddenly we go, oh, wait a minute. There is something out there. There is something more to life than bank balances and breast implants and internships. There's something worth doing here. And then we come to spirituality. So we don't really know what it is, but we know it's worthwhile pursuing. So now I'm going to lead us in a little exercise. Hopefully it will give you that same experience, but in a deeper way. We did this last week, actually. So we're going to run it one more time. The argument is this. LA popping out. Physical, yeah. Thank. <laughs> Someone realized that I, I, um, I'm from LA and they made a comment. It's kind of funny. Anyway, I'm not actually from LA. I just live here. So anyway, here is the exercise. You can hear, smell, taste, and see. And when we did our meditation at the beginning of class today, you noticed that the moment you became aware of sensing, something shifted inside you. There was a change. Your breath became deeper and slower. Your experience of your body became a little bit more grounded, a little more present, if you allow me to use that word. I try to stay away from words like mystical, spiritual, beautiful, truthful, pleasant. It don't mean anything, you know. But, um, and they mean different things to different people. But you can at least grant that there was a feeling of like being here and now. And that feeling, it's hard to describe, but you know when, you're, when you shift into it. So by paying attention to your senses, you were able to shift into that feeling. So here's the argument. 
The seer and the seen are two different things. For there to be an action seeing, there must be two things. The subject to do the seeing and the object to be seen. So follow this closely. It's very subtle, but hopefully it will give you an experience. If your eyes are looking at a cup, your eyes are the seer and the cup is the scene. The eyes are the subject, the cup is the object. So you know the eyes and the cup are different. So far so good? Next, you're able with your mind to see the eyes. So your eyes see the cup, you know you're not the cup. Your mind sees the eyes and now the eyes which were once the subject are now the object and the mind is the subject. So you realize, just like you are not the cup, you are also not your eyes. You are the mind that looks at the eyes. Ah, I can go deeper. You are no, not even the mind because you are able to be aware of yourself thinking about looking at the cup. So that means neither are you your mind. So if you accept that the seer and the scene are different things, then we can, through philosophy, prove to you that you are not the cup, you are not your eyes, you are not your mind, you are the awareness behind your body and mind. Here's the chilling thing. Everything that you know about you can be summed up in body and mind. So your ideas of yourself have to do with your body or they have to do with your mind. So there isn't even a body. You probably are very familiar with people who look in the mirror and they look a certain way, but they don't see that. They see something else. And we talked about the boy at the party. Do you remember that? He was a cute boy and then you got to know him and then he wasn't cute anymore. So the world doesn't actually exist out there. You're just making it up with your mind. So when you look at your quote unquote body in the mirror, what you see isn't what you actually are physically. It's what your mentality is making up for you. So then, even your body is a part of your personality. And your personality is a sum total of things you believe about yourself because someone told you or because you told yourself. So in the past, there might have been a teacher who was like, Oh, Nish, what an intelligent boy. And now Nish has intelligence. Nish believes himself to be intelligent. And he's all on his high horse about it. And then someone else was like, Nish, what an idiot. And then suddenly Nish has idiots, idiocy in him. All of these are just thoughts. Your personality is a bundle of thoughts in your mind. But if we have proven that you are not your body any more than you are your mind, then you turn out to be very different than Nishness, than Jackiness, than Daniness or Maginus. Like, what are you? The question then is what you really are, that awareness that witness of your body and mind is your true self. That self is always at peace. It is always in bliss. When you get really deep, it starts to become blissful. It is always authentic. And when you assume that form, you know yourself to be truly you. That's the feeling in Shavasana. So when you're lying there in Shavasana, there is a moment when you kind of switch off the personality, switch off the mind, and kind of come out of the body. So you're freed. 
You're given a release from your mind and your body. You've put down the baggage of your personality. So what happened? You experienced tremendous bliss and peace. What other ways do you try to do this? Now, my friends, this is called pleasure, kama. The word for pleasure in Sanskrit is kama. And in yoga, we say this, all pleasure is a failed attempt to annihilate your personality, mind, and body. So we realize that mind and body are not who we are. There's something inauthentic about being Nish or something kind of unfulfilling about being just mind and body. I know I'm more than those things. So I need to, quote unquote, smoke marijuana. I need to eat chocolate. I need to have all these pleasures because see what happens. In the moment I bite the chocolate, when my teeth sink into it, for a moment, that pleasure takes my entire focus. It brings me into the here and now, brings me into the body and then through the body. So I forget. I forget about my past. I forget about my future. For a moment, I've dropped the burden of nishness. So pleasure is one of the first ways that we learn to get out of suffering. But here's the rub. Pleasure intensifies our suffering. And I'll give you a few reasons. <laughs> Four reasons why. Reason number one, much like the body and the mind, pleasure doesn't last. It comes and goes so quickly. It's so transient. So really, one second of biting the chocolate, the amount of pain around that doesn't really add up to that millisecond. An orgasm at best, if it's really great, a couple of seconds, maybe a minute, you know, at best. But, you know, maybe. It's brief. It's brief. And the, the, that's the first thing. The second thing is that we build a threshold to pleasure. So what pleased us yesterday will lead twice as much today. So we need to keep upping the pleasure. So there will come a point when the pleasures that used to do it for us don't do it for us anymore. Namaste, TikTok Pandit, one, 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 one. <laughs> anyway, so that's the second reason. The pleasure, uh, we have a threshold to it. The third reason, because of the threshold of pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure often creates painful imbalances in the body that harm future pleasures. So maybe like eating too much or... Um, doing too many drugs or whatever, like maybe it ruins something else in the body and then we must suffer a sickness. So pleasure, we usually have to pay a cost for it that ruins further pleasure. Finally, and this is the most important thing, pleasure, because it is transient and because we build a threshold and because it makes us sicker, pleasure is ultimately binding and addictive and limiting. So it takes away our freedom. Here's the thing. You know at the core of your being that you are a limitless, unchanging, eternal, free being. Anything that keeps you limited, like being in a body, being in a mind, any kind of addiction, anything that keeps you trapped, you suffer because it feels inauthentic. It isn't who you are inside. So here's what yoga does. Yoga is not to make you better. Rather, it's to remind you that you are already perfect, that you in your natural state are blissful, free, perfectly eternal. It's just that you forgot. It's just that 
you are a god who mistook itself to be a human. Somehow or other, I have tricked myself into being Nish. But in reality, I have nothing to do with this body, with this mind. It just so happens that society has trained me into identifying with these things. So now you might say to me, look, bodies and minds are real. If I pinched myself, you won't feel it. If I drink this, you won't taste it going down your throat. Clearly, I'm here and you're there. I'm Nish and you're TikTok Pandit 1111, right? Here's the thing. It's going to take a lot more. Uh, yes, and we're going to talk about why you're here. So if it's true that you don't need a mind or a body, why are you in one? So that's the next part of this lecture to close. So, so far, I've explained that you suffer because you don't really know who you are. So yoga is a quest of asking the question, who am I really? And then answering it. So when you're doing your shavasana, you are in your most authentic self. When you are meditating and your mind and body are still, you are in your most authentic self. That feeling of being truly you, we call it peace. So my guarantee in yoga is that you will train yourself to more and more recognize your true nature and thereby be less and less at attached to the illusions that cause you to suffer. So the pleasures in your life that you were using as an escape for suffering they no longer have their hold over you because you found the way out of suffering. So then why are you in this body? Why are we here? So to close today's class, let me explain the creation story of yoga. We talked about how the world is created, right? It's, it's, it's projected out of you. So dig this. Most philosophies have like a god that created the world and then you're here. In yoga, you did this. No one else is to blame. No one else is responsible. You created this whole thing because you are the only thing, it turns out, that actually exists. And you will realize this in a bit. Now, this world spun out of a dream. So go back to the beginning of class when we talked about the way the mind filters reality and causes reality to appear a certain way. So you are the creator of this world. But you came into this world as a specific body and mind because there was a desire in you to experience this world. So if there wasn't this world, what would there be? Nothing but pure bliss, consciousness, and a field of white light and energy. You might experience this in a very deep meditation. If you can sit and if you can learn to meditate such that your mind is completely still, your body is completely still, and your breath becomes completely still, the world will dissolve away. And that's it. Satchit Ananda is the word we call it in yoga when we achieve this perfect bliss of pure consciousness. That state is called Shiva. So now we're going to switch out of philosophy and go into a little poetry. So we're coming into a story now, a yogic story. Beautiful. Yes, yeah, start Pilates and build back up to yoga. You're welcome in my class anytime. We'll talk that later. Yes, it's Samadhi Nish. There's another Nish on TikTok now who's just really smart with this yoga stuff. Yes, it's Samadhi. That's the name of the experience of complete transcend transcendence 
of self. Um, yes, yes. And the best way I can describe it is, and I'll tell you a story about that. The first time it happened to me, um, I was practicing for many like years before this experience happened. And even when it happened, it was very brief. So what happened was I was back home in Malaysia and I had spent the whole day, um, you know, fasting, meditating, doing all the yogic stuff. Um, there's a very rigorous practice. And then I remember I came out of the meditation and I went to my grandfather's room. And he's like very infirm. He passed away recently, but at that time he was very infirm. And uh, he needed a lot of help getting out of the bed and into the wheelchair. So I was like his caretaker. It was me, um, this other guy that we had hired to be his caretaker, and my dad. So the three of us were all there in the room and we're picking my grandfather up. So this is when it happened. I remember I was on one side and the um, grandfather's assistant was on the other and my dad was on the couch and I picked my grandfather up and suddenly there was a moment where I was breathing but I was acutely aware that I didn't know whose nostril was mine. I don't know how to describe it better than that. I just didn't know um, who's, I could feel the air gliding up the nose, but I didn't know who was who. And I was very physically in all the bodies at once. And I experienced a bliss that was like just beyond, I couldn't even, can't even describe it. Like to he who has had the experience, no words are necessary. To he who has not, none are possible. You know, because it's the mind can only say so much. But how can you describe something when you aren't even a person to have experienced it? You know, Nish wasn't there to experience it. So how can Nish tell you what it was like, you know? Um, and so the word for it is samadhi, which in yoga is the complete dropping of the mind and body. And suddenly you become all minds, all bodies. You become the world, the cosmos. You feel yourself swirling in this primordial soup, stars exploding. And it's all so pleasurable. You know, it feels like a, like the whole world is doing a backbend. There's only, that's the only way I know how to describe it. Like when you do a backbend, like an Urdhva Mukha Svanasana, and it feels so good. It's like, oh, the groan of creation. And then it was over. And then I was like, back in my body. And I fell right out of it. And, you know, it took a while before the bliss wore off, but it was distinctly different. Then it just felt good. Then it was just like, oh, a good meditation. And, you know, some of you notice all bliss states go away. You know, eventually the Shavasana, you're like lying there. You're like, oh man, this is so divine. And then you get in your car and you're driving back home from the yoga studio. And then someone cuts you in traffic and you're just like, you're back in the body. It's gone. You know, you're meditating beautifully and then it's gone. So that's the thing. Yoga will progressively make your life more and more blissful, but we're not there yet. When we're there, then our life is permanent, complete bliss. And I have a long, long, long way to go to that um, state, you know? Um, but that being said, yoga then gives you a method to have this experience, to actually feel it and, 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 and experience it for yourself so you don't just take someone's word for it. The reason you're all here, though, is because... And I love that. When I hit a high note, I feel like the whole universe sings with me and then it's gone. We have a lot of artists in the room. We actually have a very beautiful singer here, Danny, who I play in a band with. And um, it's it's like art. Yes, Maggie is here too. I'm very, I haven't yet had a chance to make art with Maggie, but I'm very excited too. But there is something about art and we're going to talk about that in a bit. 
And art, like a lot of things, brings you into the here and now. So anything that can draw you into the present is something that takes you out of your mind, out of your body, and will give you that glimpse. So yoga, much like art, and by the way, singing and dancing are part of yoga. It's called bhakti yoga. They're actually practices in the canon of yoga. So, you know, what we're doing now, it's called jnana yoga, meaning philosophy. So a yogi um, sings and dances, does philosophy, does their asana, does their breathing, does their meditation. It's a whole bunch of things. It's a lifestyle. And you're doing it, and all you're trying to do is drop the mind, drop the body, and experience this state. Because when you experience this state, yeah, that's what bhakti yoga is. You know, there's a lot of research about music that when you play a repeating melody, it makes your uh, kind of state, you go into a trance-like state, and it switches your brain waves from alpha and beta waves into uh, delta or gamma waves. So music is able to bring you into that same space as meditation. So ultimately, don't be too attached to your path. Whether you're a bhakti yogi, chanting, Hari Hari, Krishna, 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 Hari Hari, or you're a rock musician, or you're a carpenter, or you're a philosopher, or you're a hatha yogi, whatever your path is, don't be too attached by the path, because the path is a means to an end. Ultimately, you end up in the same place, which is no mind, no body, or rather I should say, all mind, all body. So this then is the ultimate goal of yoga. If you can remember this, you can already spare yourself a lot of pain now. So even before a yoga practice, you can just remember to yourself, look, I am not my mind, I'm not my body. We discovered that. Monday night philosophy. We did some philosophy, we realized we're not. We're not the mind, we're not the body. Therefore, don't freak out. It's okay. All the harm you think can come to you doesn't actually come to you. It comes to your mind. It comes to your body. The body can be broken. Especially if you work in the music industry, you'll probably lose your mind. Like these things will happen, but they have nothing to do with you, right? You're fine. You're beyond all of that. So if I'm sitting in a chair and the chair breaks, I'll just go and sit in a new one, you know? Similarly, if something happens to this body, relax. It's okay. It's not you. It's just, you know, a phenomenon. That being said, most of us don't freak out when we change our clothes. Isn't that crazy? Like we just change our clothes and we're chill about it, most of us. And some of us change our clothes three times a day. I, I know I used to. And the point there is the reason I'm okay doing it is because I am convinced at the core of my being that I am not my clothes. I like clothes. They're a way for me to express something more genuine about myself. So there I am projecting out into the world a fashion statement. The clothes are desirable. They're fun, but they're not me. So when I change, I, I'm chill. If I give my clothes away to the Salvation Army, I'm chill. If my clothes get ripped up or someone steals them, not as chill, but you know, relatively chill. Now, imagine if you realize that about your body. If you not only had the concept, oh, I'm not my body, concepts won't save you, right? Like when pain comes, it's going to be there and then try to not be the body then. So it's not about concepts. It's about practicing until you really know at the core of your being that you are not your body. Then when pain comes, you won't suffer. Can you dig that? There is a difference between pain and suffering. Suffering is when you feel pain and you're like, this shouldn't be happening to me. 
Like this is wrong. I protest. I reject this. Suffering is your mental opinions about pain. Suffering is your identification with pain. If you knew that you were not the body, if you knew that you were not the mind, you would never suffer. Yes, your body might feel pain. Your mind might feel pain. There will be grief when you lose things that you love. There will be all these emotions, but there won't be suffering. That's a really hard one to swallow. The fact that you can feel grief, but still be blissful about it. That you could cry, you could lose an arm. And I haven't lost an arm, so I don't really want to comment on that because I can only speak from my own experience. But there will be times when you will cry, when you will lose things that are meaningful to you, when you will be in sickness and pain, but all the while, you will be blissful. This is the hardest thing to understand. Most of us can only conceive of happiness and joy. We don't really yet know bliss. Bliss is an overarching feeling of deep peace that is so beyond the transitory passing happiness, joy, sorrows. Bliss happens when you realize that every sorrow brings joy. Every joy brings sorrow. And now you're beyond that. So that's the thing. You live for these, these feelings because you're identified with the person who's experiencing them. So I'm like, Nish is joyful now. Nish is sorrowful now. But when I practice yoga and I completely identify with my true self, which has nothing to do with Nish's body or mind, then Nish can be in sorrow. Nish can be in joy, whatever. I am in bliss. I am sitting peacefully, perfectly in bliss. You are operating on two levels at once. Then all your actions become effortless. You flow with life. You realize intuitively what to do when you need to do it. Artists have a distinct advantage at being spiritual because art is a way to experience for yourself what I'm talking about. Because when you're really in the moment with art, not only do you feel bliss, but you also intuitively know what note comes next, what move comes next, what nail comes next. You are not acting. You're just a vessel for a universal intelligence to move through you. And it feels amazing. So this is ultimately yoga. The word Islam means surrender. That is the spirit of yoga. Pranidhana is the word in Sanskrit. To enter a... Yes, fasting definitely helps enter the slow state. Um, yes, kundalini, that's another way to say it. There are all these ways to describe the way energy moves through you and influences the world. And you are just sitting and watching. It's all just happening. And it's a beautiful dance. So why are we here? The question is, why do we make art? It's because... There is something in us that desires expression. It's just that we have gotten lost along the way. When you master yoga, you will not somehow leave the world. You're not going to evaporate into mist, like fade away into nothing, like I'm done, I've leveled up, I'm out of here. Rather, you're going to realize the world is here for one reason only, for your enjoyment for your playfulness. You created it for a reason. You created the nishness and you also created the mountain. And all of these are individual expressions of your genius. And I'm not talking to, to you know, 
um, lost lion art as a person or Lavender Faye as a person or Jackie as a person. I'm talking to your higher self. I'm talking to that being behind the body and mind of Jackie. I am talking to that being that I am. Yes, that's it. Uh, it's funny. So ultimately, here's the practice I will leave you with today. Why don't you start to refer to yourself in the third person? Try it out. See what happens. As you walk around, just be like somebody compliments you. Be like, Nish is really enjoying that compliment right now. Or something upsets you. And you sit there and you go, wow, Nish is really upset right now, isn't he? That really got his goat. Who would have thought Nish was so invested in teaching a good yoga class he messed it up and now he feels like he's a bad yoga teacher. Silly Nish. As if, as if teaching yoga is cool. You know? Like that's the thing. If you sit there and you watch yourself, not only will you realize how ridiculous you're being, but also you'll realize how funny it all is. You know? And life will happen. The drama of life will happen. But you will remain in your heart center watching it all unfold with infinite compassion, with infinite bliss, having fun. And if you keep practicing, you will start to remember your past lives. You will start to look at flowers and trees and realize a kinship with them. You will start to look everywhere and see only yourself, which can be eerie, but is ultimately liberating. Now, the word for enlightenment in Buddhism is nirvana which we talked about means blowing out, ending suffering. The Buddha didn't want to tell you what it was because he wanted you to go and find out for yourself. That's Buddhism. In yoga, the word for enlightenment, oh, hello, Noor, welcome to my philosophy class. One of my debate students from the uh, high school, middle school I teach is here, which is lovely. So now um, the Buddha said enlightenment is nirvana. It's the ending of your suffering. In yoga, Guess what the word for enlightenment is? It's quite eerie. The word is kaivalya, which in Sanskrit means aloneness. And it seems kind of weird, but you realize there never was a Nish, there never was a Jackie. In fact, it was all just you this whole time. And that's great because you are all you will ever need. You are a perfectly self-sufficient being. Of course, to really dig that, you have to experience it. And that's why we practice. And the practice is a method to get you to this experience. If you have glimpsed this piece, if you've experienced even a fraction of this authentic reality that I'm speaking of, it will bring you to practice. And as you continue to practice, it will become more and more real from you, for you and your practice will start to intensify. So now maybe your practice is something you do to make your life feel better. Then it becomes something you do because it's your like central way to discover truth and beauty. Then it becomes something you do because you realize it's the only meaningful thing to do. And by practice, I don't just mean asana. Practice can take any form. It can be an art. It can be service to humanity. Anything that allows you to step out of your mind and out of your body and deepen your connection to this present moment will show you who you really are and will show you your way out of suffering. So to close today's lesson, here's a love story. There was a God and his name is Shiva. He represents pure bliss. You as you really are. 
Shiva, if you've seen his picture, sits in lotus pose and he meditates and he's got a little smile at the corner of his lips. He's fine. He's in the mountains. He's totally done with the world. He doesn't need the world. He's not of the world. He's above the world. He's beyond it all. He is the witness in you. But he has a wife and his wife's name is Shakti. Shakti means power. There are other names for her, Kali, Durga, Parvati. She is the feminine principle. She loves the world. She is the world, right? She's a metaphor for nature, for pleasure, for the world. And Shiva and Shakti are madly in love. You can't separate them. They're always with each other. They're one and the same, really. Yin and yang, the masculine and the feminine. Now, like all lovers, they have their fights, you know? They have their little lovers' fights. And so one day, Shiva and Shakti were sitting. Shiva was talking to Shakti. Shakti got into a little argument with him. And he was like, bah, I don't want to have anything to do with you, Shakti. We're done. And she's like, fine, Shiva. I'm out of here. And so she leaves. She is the world. He is not the world. He is spirit. So remember how we said in yoga, we have precisely right, Purusha and Prakriti, spirit and nature. Shiva is spirit. Shakti is nature. So she goes out and creates the world. And then guess what happens? They start to miss each other. Shiva misses the embrace of his, his wife. Shakti misses the companionship of her husband. All of this drama is just the two of them trying to get back to one another. Shiva is in your crown chakra. He's trying to come down into the world. He is your desire to live, to experience, to be in a body. Shakti lives in your root chakra. She's trying to make it up to him. So where do they meet? If Shiva is coming down from the crown chakra, if Shakti is coming up from the root chakra, where do they meet? Heart chakra. Love is the way to spirituality. That's where they meet. Now, you as a human, here's your predicament. You are half angel, half animal. You can't be one or the either. Try to live like an animal. Just satisfy all your desires. Don't read any philosophy. Don't meditate. And you'll feel weird. You'll feel like only half a person. Do the other. Try to just be an angel and reject your animal nature. And you're going to suppress all kinds of things. Be very unhealthy and be very dry and boring. So you are neither completely an angel nor are you completely an animal. You're caught somewhere in between the two. You are the divine romance between Shiva and Shakti. Your job in yoga is to bring these lovers together because ultimately these lovers are the two halves of yourself. So why do we do this? When we bring our hands together and place it over our heart, that's the metaphor. The right hand is ha, meaning sun, masculine principle. The left is tha, meaning moon, feminine principle. When I bring together ha and tha, what do I have? Hatha yoga. Hatha yoga is the bringing together of opposites in the heart. In the heart, my dear friends, the place of love. So let us end today's class there by bringing the hands together over the heart. We will chant one final om together. So relax the shoulders, dropping the shoulders from the ear, bowing the head, surrender the mind to the heart. One inhale to om.
May all beings everywhere be free of suffering, and may all our actions contribute to this grand goal. Peace, peace, peace. Namaste. Thank you for another great episode of For the Love of Yoga. To get in on the discussion, you can find me at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish for more episodes and more content. Stick around for some question and answers throughout the end of the rest of this podcast. And I hope to see you again in the next episode. Peace, peace, peace. Ha. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nish. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Maggie. I'm so happy. What? You're a god. No, you just a god. But I feel like never mind. No, it's just when you talk like when people talk like that, it's just honestly like, ugh, like it's <laughs> so great. Nish is very much enjoying that compliment. <laughs> Nish is delighting in it. You are pleasing him so much. Thank you, everyone. You know, Jackie, thank you for coming. I know it's late where you are. I really appreciate it. I recorded this. So um, if you want the recording, send me an email and I'll shoot it back to you. Um, if you're on TikTok, we are currently meeting right now on Zoom with Stay Home Yoga, where I teach all of my yoga lessons three times a week. So it's free always. Everyone's welcome. We're just walking each other home. All right, gang. Shoot me any questions anytime via DM or email. Happy to serve in any way. <laughs> Have a lovely night, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Jackie. Have a beautiful night. And Jenna, super tramp. <laughs>